Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Heather Martin, who is a writer and academic. Born in Australia, Heather grew up in Perth and also in France before moving to England to become a classical guitarist. However, she ended up singing with a Venezuelan folk group and learning Spanish instead. Heather read languages at Cambridge, where she also did a PhD in comparative literature, and she has held teaching and research positions at Cambridge, Hull, King's College London, and the Graduate Centre City University in New York. In September last year, Heather published The Reacher Guy, the authorised biography of Lee Child, with the paperback edition published in October this year. Heather, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here, and thanks for that very fulsome introduction. Now, obviously, we're going to be talking about books, about the, yeah. your own books that you've written, about books that, that your favourite books, but I did love the, the fact that you had you came to England to pursue a career as a classical guitarist, but then ended up getting hooked up with a Venezuelan folk group, as you do. That's classic London, I think, really. You know, you don't really, I, I certainly didn't know what I was going to find. I was very young at the time and um, I was deposited by my parents. I was 16 and they sort of left me in a, a boarding house in North London. And I literally ended up with a bunch of other uh, would-be guitarists. That was the logic of me being in that house. They were studying with the same teacher as me. But the, the twist in the tale is that they were all from Venezuela. And so they were all speaking Spanish to each other all the time. And I was just there, you know, I didn't understand a word. And then just gradually, I, it was like being a kid, you know, I, just gradually the words started to filter through into my brain. And, you know, I kind of picked up bits, then I joined their band. <laughs> and so I was uh, reproducing longer strings, if you like, of language. And um, yeah. eventually, I, I, yeah, I learned to speak it. And it was, it was great fun because that sort of period lasted for three to four years before I went to Cambridge. And um, when I went to Cambridge, uh, it was about six months before there was one professor in particular who literally thought I was Venezuelan for about six <laughs> months because I'd picked up the whole, you know, obviously I was, that's how I learned. So yeah. I learned orally. So I was very much speaking with that accent and those turns of phrase and things. So it was, it was a really kind of mad period of my life, but fun. Because I always wonder sometimes, you know, like if you look back in your life, there's got moments of kind of serendipity of, and particularly when we go on to talk about how you get involved in, in writing the Reacher guy and how you involve Lee Child and involves, you know, the fact that you're you're fluent in Spanish as well. And you you know, yeah. just that, going back to that point where you you come to England, you can't speak the language, but then you know, it pays off in so many different ways down through the I years. know. And and every single one of them unexpected, in fact. <laughs> I guess that's the, that's the beauty of it. Yeah. You know, I mentioned the fact that, you know, last year the Reacher guy, the authorized biography of Lee Child came out. The paperback edition is just coming out now. First of all, I have to say that title is just genius because see when I, when I was reading it and I would say to people, when people weren't familiar, I would say I'm reading this a biography of Lee Child and if somebody say Lee Child, I'd say, yeah, the Reacher guy. And I said that two or three times, I thought, that was genius. I take my hat off to you. Oh, well, that's brilliant. But you know, that was, um, it was a gift from Lee. Not that he suggested it, he didn't. 
But obviously, as part of the process of writing the biography, I would go along to hear him speak when I could. And I noticed that he would so often, it, it always came up in the context of people saying to him, will you ever write a book about another character? You know, is there, is there a book you'd really like to write that's not a reachable book? And he'd say, well, yeah, maybe there is, maybe there isn't, but that's not what my readers want. You know, I've written, you know, I've written books about Chet Reacher and that's what the readers want and who am I to sort of go against what they want? And he would always end by saying, that's who I am, I'm the Reacher guy. So it was there on a plate, you know, and, and I just didn't feel that there was any other possibility. He always said that if he was writing his own um, autobiography, he would call it Always Lucky, which is fine. And I used that. I stole it for a, a chapter of a title. But, um, uh, you know, I, I just felt that that's his perspective on his own life. But, you know, for me, he was the Richie guy. But, yeah, the Spanish thing was, was weird because that was a major factor in, in, in um, me coming to write it, which was that, you know, I would kind of met him or I hadn't actually met him, but I'd corresponded with him casually. And uh, he uh, sent by a friend a copy of his, one of his books in Spanish. He knew I was a Spanish academic and um, asked me what I thought of it. And uh, it was, again, one of those moments where I thought, I've got to kind of grasp this moment. You know, <laughs> I, could, I could just say, oh, it's wonderful, of course, you know. But I thought, well, you know, I've got to take this seriously and, and treat this question with the respect it deserves. Plus, I, I didn't actually think it was that great. So I kind of... Um, I told him, but rather than just giving him an opinion, I needed to give him sort of, you know, some rationale and some logic and some reasoning. So I kind of sent him a, an analysis, quite a close analysis of about the first four chapters to sort of show him the way that the voice had changed um, and also to show him that it didn't need to change, you know, in that way, that Spanish, that it wasn't the language that required it to change in that way. You know how Lee writes in... Well, his sentences are hugely varied, long, short, literary, uh, very oral. But you know how he does use a lot of fragments, for example. The translator of that book had corrected those fragments and had, had always made them full sentences and had often joined short sentences and then had, in an equally um, surprising way, broken up long sentences. So kind of smoothed it all out and made it more, kind of normalised it, but made it much less Lee Child. And, and Spanish accepts fragments just like English does. So, you know, I just didn't see why. I didn't see that there was a need for it. It was that conversation that we had, because obviously he responded to that and he was interested. Um, it was that that really led ultimately, you know, over a period of time to the biography. I, I read a, a couple of interviews that you've given just in terms of around about the time publicising the book. And one of the questions was asking you to give your elevator pitch for the book, to which you'd replied... Jack Reacher is only the second of Jim Grant's great fictional characters. The first is Lee Child himself. The Reacher yeah. guy is the story of the three of them. And I thought, again, you read that and you think, right, I want to read that book. Oh, fabulous. It's great to hear that. That's what I like to hear. Well, the thing is, I, of course, I met um, Jack Reacher first. You know, I'd read the books. And then I met Lee Child. I hadn't, when I first read Jack Reacher, I didn't really think about Lee Child. I just enjoyed the books like everyone does, you know, like any sensible Jack Reacher reader, I just did good read. And okay, oh, Lee Child book, great, that's a Jack Reacher story. It's the Reacher guy, you know, I'll read that. Then when I met him, obviously he's, he's a pretty interesting guy, as anyone who's heard him speak would um, uh, acknowledge, I think. But then I, I suddenly realised that I didn't know anything about Jim Grant. So I had to um, go back and, you know, kind of excavate, if you like, Jim Grant from his past. 
But the better I got to know Lee and the more I sort of hung out with him in New York in particular when I was working on the biography, I would actually see him being both people on the same day. You know, so when he would enter his building in New York, um, his, uh, his home, the, the doorman would always say, you know, hello, Mr. Grant. You know, if he was in the bank he, or at a restaurant, he might just as easily sign Jim Grant as Lee Child. So, um, you know, Jim Grant was right there all along. <laughs> and, and the other thing is that when I started writing the biography, you know, obviously I kind of, biographies tend to be fairly linear, but I thought no one's going to pick this book up unless they know Jack Reacher. So I couldn't kind of pretend Jack Reacher wasn't there, even though he wasn't literally there for the first 39 years of Lee's life. You know, so Jack Reacher had to be in there right from the beginning. So, yeah, I found I was writing about all three all the way through. And I think that was one of the things that made it particularly interesting, you know, for me as a writer. I also think is for readers, because I think, I mean, that's fascinating, the fact that you know, he, he, as you say, you can see two different characters of that person in the one day, depending on where he is and who he's interacting with. But I think in terms of the actual book itself, I think the fact that you, especially that a, lot, a lot of Reacher fans will be coming to read that book and the three lives are interlinked and, and you often use passages from some of the Reacher books in, in relation to maybe some of the things that had happened in, in his life mm-hmm. and almost like where, where this is coming from, which I think works yeah. really well. And there's a little bit of a chicken and egg factor to it now that so much time has gone by from being Lee Child and some of his Jim Grant memories are hazier. But certain words that you read in the book, uh, books are also just words he uses to talk about his life, the exact same words and phrases, and no doubt vice versa. And I suspect that he's been using some of those words and phrases and stories or visualising them or fantasising some of those scenarios, you know, well before he became Lee Child. So it is, it is all very intermingled in his own uh, mind, in my yeah. opinion. Because one of the words, and I'm not sure if I've read it in any of the reviews of, of your book, but the word that always springs to mind when I was reading it is, is forensic, because I suppose the temptation, I presume from some biographers, is you can do a, a kind of sweeping view of somebody's life, but not really go into the, the detail that, that actually the best biographies do. And I think that's what, that, that's what your book does, because it, did you say maybe because it's a, you're exploring the lives of three people almost, but it's you kind of feel that no stone is left unturned in this research that you've done, which again I'm kind of like slightly in awe of. Oh, thank you. I mean, I, I that was important to me because for me the um, authenticity resides in the detail. Really, there had been a lot written about Lee prior to the biography, but with a few notable exceptions, most of it was pretty much the same thing because I read all the interviews so that I could lay my hands on, obviously, and listen to all of them. And, um, so there, there, was a, there was a Lee Child story that was out there. And I already knew that some of it was factually incorrect. And that sort of, you know, I thought, well, hang on, I want to disentangle some of that. And I want to, you know, put some of that straight. And, and also, I just really enjoy the detail. For me, the, the detail is what brings it to life. I mean, do you think that's because of your academic background as well, that, it, that how, you, how you'd approach a project like this? Possibly. Um, I, I think it's just certain, to, to an extent, it's just a certain pleasure that I take in those things, um, which is important as well when you're writing. Also, it's kind of characteristic of Lee himself. He's very details conscious. You know, he's very observant. He's hyper observant. In fact, I did feel when I was writing the biography that, you know, I didn't want to be too influenced by other biographies. I mean, I definitely knew I didn't want to do a celebrity biography. I wanted to go deeper than that. And I wanted it to be as literary as I thought you know, the readership might tolerate without the book getting too big and too long. 
Um, but I also sort of felt that I owed it to my subject to tell a decent story, which I hope I've done. <laughs> because I thought this is, you know, this is a master storyteller. People read his books because they like a, a story and they want to keep turning the pages. Now, obviously, I don't pretend it's the same kind of experience, but what I was very conscious of, and increasingly so as I went through the book, was that um, I wanted each chapter to be a kind of self-contained story. Because I thought with a big, detailed book like that, people might want to put it down, pick it up, come back to it, leave it for a while. And I thought, you know, it might be satisfying, really, to have a self-contained story in each chapter. So I, I definitely did aim for that. I sort of had an idea or an image that I started off with and, and kind of let that steer me through to the end of that chapter. And it usually led me to where I wanted to be for the next one. So, yeah, it was a really quite enjoyable experience, to be honest, the whole writing process. And I suppose the big question is, how did Jim Grant's role, Lee Child, like your, the, the finished book? Yeah, I mean, I showed him a couple of chapters early on, um, very early on, before we'd fully settled on, you know, that I would do it. it was, so the idea was being discussed, but um, then I'd written a couple of chapters. The first ones, I did it all in order, pretty much. And... Um, you know, he enjoyed them. And then about three months later, I sent him the first 10 chapters and he loved it. He included some of the stuff about school at that point and he really enjoyed that. And then I left it alone. I didn't send him any more until I'd finished the whole of the first draft. And I was, it was lovely when I sent it to him because he was, um, he was, he was very moved, actually. <laughs> he was very moved, I think. I think he was pretty moved by the amount of, work I'd put into it <laughs> uh, and the amount of care he felt I'd put into it but he was also very moved by the memories of people that he'd many of whom he'd lost touch with people I tracked down that he hadn't spoken to since his school days whenever I told him oh I'm going to speak to so-and-so um he would always say oh, you know they won't be interested they won't even know who I am they won't remember me they won't have anything to say they won't want to do it and I said well I'll find out and, and actually there was not one well there, actually I think there was one person who didn't want to get involved but other than that, it was everyone, you know, was so keen to talk um, to me. And um, they were so generous with their time and their memories. And some of them did not know about Lee Child and they didn't know he'd become Lee Child. So they were giving me pure Jim Grant memories, which I loved. I mean, for me, that was almost the most precious stuff, kind of unadulterated, if you like, by fame. And I think he found reading some of those memories of people he'd known many years ago very moving and people he'd worked with but had lost touch with. So the fact that they remembered him at all, I think, uh, and remembered him on the whole warmly and with affection. So, so, yeah, I think he found it moving. I think he also found it pretty weird. You know, he wasn't expecting someone to want to do that. And um, I guess it must be pretty weird reading someone else tell the story of your life. But I think he felt I'd done a decent job of it, and that's kind of what mattered to him. Well, any, anybody who is a fan of Lee Child, then you should really read The Reacher Guy. And if you're not a, a fan of Lee Child, why not? Then go and read The Reacher books and The Reacher Guy, which obviously is out in paperback now. Well, Heather, uh, obviously we want to find out more about your literary life. And so I want to take you back, first of all, to childhood, to get your favourite book from childhood. And the book that you've chosen is a book, Swallows and Amazons by Arthur Ransom. What is it about that book that has made you choose that particular one? Well, you know, it's funny because I was so happy to be invited to come on this um, podcast, but I really hate questions about favourites. As soon as someone <laughs> asks me for a favourite book at any point in my life, my brain just starts to scan a wall of books. 
I want to kind of reel off a never-ending list. I mean, when I was a very young child growing up, as you said, in West Australia and pretty much on the Indian Ocean, there was, in my house, there was no television for quite a long time. I had a dog. I had the beach. I had lots of books. And I had, well, my grandparents had lots of books and they also had a mulberry tree, a huge mulberry tree in the back garden. And I used to spend a lot of time around their house reading books and often up the mulberry tree reading books. And my father was also a great reading he read aloud to uh to me and to my sister a lot when we were young and he kind of very much favored the the, the sort of australian classics so he would read me sort of stories like poems and stories by you know kind of banjo patterson or um henry lawson um great characters very colorful a lot of rhyme and rhythm and humor and also other classics like the way of the whirlwind and arthur Lindsay's the magic pudding all about a cut and come again pudding. And I could have chosen any of those books, but I thought mm, most of them will be unfamiliar to anyone listening. They might know Arthur Ransom. And um, that series, in a way, just stands for all series. I read many series um, when I was a child. I loved them. And that stands for those series. It was one of my favourites, certainly. As well, it kind of represents my Penguin Puffin collection. I had so many puffin books and I adored them I still have many of them little paperbacks and you know a lot of them are still intact although if I open them roughly now they'll you know the pages will flutter to the floor but you know again I had so many sort of things like obviously the Moomin books and Gobelino the Witch's Cat and the 101 Dalmatians and Marianne's Dream and all sorts of things but yeah I mean the Arthur Ransom I guess it was obviously written in the 1930s, and it was the first four books of the series, I think, that I enjoyed most, Swallows and Amazons and Swallowdale and Peter Duck and Winter Holiday, set mostly in the Lake District. And I'd been to England as a very young child with my family. So England was kind of a place of, you know, romance for me, <laughs> especially with the contrast with, you know, where I lived um, um, in Australia. And I guess that they just... Um, the beauty of those books is their connection with the real world, because it's quite a realistic setting, but the way they accommodate so much, um, you know, those great themes that all children thrive on, I think, of um, escape and adventure and fantasy. You know, you had the Walker kids who were the explorers, and then you had... Um, Nancy and Peggy who were the pirates and at any one point in reading those books you might identify with any of those characters obviously the the naughtier the character the more I identify <laughs> with them <laughs> or the more unorthodox or the sort of imaginative ones who were always getting into scrapes and then getting themselves out of scrapes so you know it was just the kind of book that you could lose yourself in and also um, discover another world and I, I suspect that um, probably at some subliminal level they had some quite a strong influence on me coming over here in the first place you know to England um, not that was not conscious at all obviously I'd moved on from there but you know I always had that affection for England and quite possibly formed by books of that time. Because I always think as well you know like children's books most people quite often as a series of books because I think when you're younger you're you're kind of, everybody's a voracious reader, so you're just devouring book after book. But I wonder if that sometimes, that, that gives you that foundation also for as an adult to read a series of books that very often, that's what people enjoy as well, that they find a character that they love and get invested in and then want to read another one and another one. And I suppose as writers, that must be great because then you're building up that audience. And I wonder if that comes from when you, you read a series of books when you're a kid. I'm sure you're right, actually. There's... 
there's nothing more enjoyable. It's certainly something that Lee always goes on about, you know, how he, he loved reading in general and again was a voracious reader, but the series were always his favourite. And that's what, you know, made him want to write a series of his own. That was his dream. And precisely, as you say, because you become invested in the characters. But those children's books often, I mean, un unlike his, they tend to have a group of recurring characters. And I think that's also great because, as I say, you get to kind of identify with all different um, types at certain stages in your reading. But yeah, and maybe then as adults, when we read a series and get invested in a series, it's partly because we're, we're finding um, that, you know, old comfort and that old pleasure that we had as children. And I'd be sitting there on the floor with my dog at my side, just reading book after book after book. <laughs> I mean, did you ever go back and revisit Swallows and Abazons at any other stage in your life? I tried reading them to my own sons at one point when they were young. At least I read one of them. But, you know, the magic wasn't the same for them, perhaps because they were born and growing up in Cambridge. I don't know. They probably wanted the stories about the Australian outback, basically. And, and also, those things do date, I suppose, um, so if you already love them, you probably will always love them and you forgive them their period quality, but they don't necessarily capture new audiences in the same way, I think. That's obviously your favourite book from childhood. Then we move on to kind of teenage student formative years and the, the book you've chosen or it's uh, The Ballads and Rural Tragedies by Federico Garcia Lorca. I have. And of course, this is the nor normally the point because you said teenager or, or student, and I went for student. I don't really remember the reading so much in my teenage years. I think my teenage years were quite complicated. We did a lot of traveling. And um, so, you know, I don't have that same sort of sense of being rooted and having books around me. But by the time I got to university and was, you know, inhabiting my Venezuelan persona, <laughs> I, I usually reached for Jorge Luis Borges at this point, because probably that, you know, the Argentine writer, that's the writer who's had the greatest influence on me in, in terms of ideas and just stayed with me and influenced my own thinking and writing as an adult. Um, and obviously I discovered him at university. But, you know, so I thought, well, really, it could just as easily be, be Lorca, Garcia Lorca, a completely different kind of writer. But I guess in the same way that the Ransom represented my Puffin collection, Either of those writers, in a way, represents my, my Spanish experience. And part of it was just the sheer joy of, of discovering an entire new uh, literary world in an entirely different language with a very different feel. And that was absolutely thrilling, to be honest. And it still thrills me even now, you know, to be able to read those books in Spanish. And I kind of had fallen in love with the Spanish language because I already spoke French and I liked French, but because I'd learned that really, really young. But I loved the clarity and the consistency of Spanish, the vowel sounds being always the same. So there were, you know, literally just five vowel sounds <laughs> and they never change. And so when I read the ballads, the poetry, it was just such a pleasure to say those words aloud, literally to hear them, to say them. Again, the rhythm and rhyme, perhaps that also harks back a little bit to my childhood, although very different kind of writing. And it kind of opened up a whole world of southern Spain, most of the, mostly set in Andalusia, so too the tragedies. And they're, they're all quite intense and they're quite dark and, you know, hard hitting, but just linguistically beautiful and very, very moving. You know, I really felt like I was seeing the world through different eyes. I also already had a bit of a love affair with Spain because 
when uh, we were traveling, when I was a teenager, we went to Spain when I was about 13. And it had a big impact on me. Particularly, we didn't, we didn't really go to the coast. We went to the interior. So cities like Toledo and Segovia and Sevilla, you know, we were traveling down towards the south and Granada. Uh, they made it a, an incredible impact on me. They're just so, so beautiful. And uh, again, so different. Perhaps the climate a bit more like Australia, but architecturally so different and so different to England, where, you know, which I, and France, which I knew well by then. And um, I remember particularly falling in love with the Alhambra Palace in Granada. And I remember hearing a guitarist there playing Recuerdos de la Alhambra, Memories of the Alhambra, by some, one of the, the mini sort of ponds in the mini patios in that gorgeous location. And you can you know, see the, the Sierra Nevada, the snowy mountains, even though it's burning hot where you are. And uh, I remember, I'm sure to this day, I kind of think it was Andres Segovia, you know, one of the all-time great Spanish guitarists. Of course it wasn't, but in my <laughs> mind, it's sort of completed. And, and, you know, so the whole thing of music and wanting to be a guitarist and then the joy of actually learning the language some years later. You see, when I went to university, because it's university I have to thank for Borges and Lord obviously Cambridge, because when I went there, I, I, I literally hadn't read a book in Spanish. I'd done a lot of speaking and I'd done a lot of um, talking, you know, uh, singing. Um, and I, you know, was fluent in the language, but I hadn't read anything. So it was, it was a real, it was quite mind-blowing, sort of that whole that discovery of a new realm. And of course, Lorca himself, I mean, such a, a great and terrible life story. You know, he's um, born just down the road from Granada in Fuente Vaqueros. And... Um, course assassinated by the fascists in 1936 during the Spanish Civil War of really a victim of the war but also of homophobia and he was only 38 and his output you know in those few short years really I suppose a couple of decades he would have been producing the poems and the plays was just phenomenal and if you read his stuff in the original or even in English he translates surprisingly well or if you see the plays you never forget them you know, they just make that kind of really powerful impression on you. Because I was curious, you know, given what you were saying earlier on about when you had you'd read a Spanish translation of a Reacher novel and then critiqued it. And I was wondering, you know, given you'd came to these ballads and the, the tragedies in Spanish, what the experience was like then reading as in, and translated into English. Could you enjoy it the reading same the, way? Or? You mean reading the Lorca in English? Yeah. I mean, there's some... People have had a really good go at it, but it is very, very difficult to translate poetry. And when it's so dependent on rhythm and rhyme, I think it's uh, especially difficult. Although what was also fun about those, uh, those poems is that they are inhabited by great characters. So, you know, it's a little bit like reading in their gypsy ballads, um, but it's a little bit like reading ancient sort of, almost like reading Robin Hood or King Arthur, these great characters, rural characters doing great things, getting involved in great knife fights and... Um, that translates okay, but not so much the language, but the plays work well, I think. The plays work well and they work well on stage because the intensity is still there and the, the essential, you know, the drama, what's happening, what's unfolding. And, um, you know, there's a very strong sense in Spanish culture in general, there's a, there's a sort of much more, uh, there's a much greater aware, awareness of death on a daily basis as, as being like present within life, part of life, rather than its terminus which is quite dark in a way, but also um, 
in a way quite consoling because it's kind of accepted and integrated and not uh, ignored or mystified particularly. Um, and that comes out a lot in, in, in the plays. Of course, I have to say, in the last year or so, we've um, been much more conscious of death in our own daily lives, haven't we? Which has, <laughs> um, you know, been quite a shift in our culture, I think. Because you'd mentioned, obviously, his, the tragedy of, of him being killed by the fascists in, mm. in the Spanish Civil War. And apparently, well, you know, you wouldn't probably know this better than me, when I was doing the research, apparently he was, his remains were never found. That, that was one that's of the... right, that's right. No one really knows, um, you know, where he was, well, buried is, is, you know, they weren't really buried. They were just tossed into mass graves, a lot of these people. And um, so, no, he's never, never been found. And so... You know, this, as I say, the story of his life in itself and all those um, great artists who die young and tragically, of course, there's a real aura around them, isn't there? And that's part of it. He was a great um, visual artist as well, you know, did beautiful drawings. So just a, a, a sort of all-round talented guy. He also took his theatre company around the country with a student theatre company, La Barraca, and was trying to bring theatre to the people you know, in a way, reminiscent of uh, theatre in Shakespearean times, really, travelling theatre company. Um, so he was just, he was a, a guy who packed a lot into his life and, you know, really tried, I don't know, really loved, loved the people he was writing for, I think. He was really trying to communicate. There's a lot of kind of passion there in the writing. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddihy, and my guest, Heather Martin. Heather, we're on to your third book choice. That is a book that you'd recommend to anyone. And the book that you've chosen is a book by Lee Child called The Hero. Yes, and I, um, I, I yeah, I would give that to anyone, recommend it to anyone, partly because it's short, a nice pocket-sized book. <laughs> and um, I think I said earlier that anyone who's heard Lee speak, um, and which fan hasn't really, whether in life or online, um, you know what a compelling experience that is. And reading that book is essentially like hearing him speak. I mean, he's, he's a good, uh, I'm going to say lecturer, even though his style is very informal, he's very oral. And, and I just think it's a fascinating book. All his sort of key preoccupations and uh, moves, rhetorical and otherwise, are there. Um, no one else could or would have written it the way he did. It kind of encapsulates all his idiosyncrasies. I think when people see the title, The Hero, they assume it's going to be a sort of an analysis or his analysis or his, his own account of Reacher, which it isn't really. Reacher pops up in passing. And he has um, written elsewhere about, you know, how Reacher was formed and what Reacher means to him. But um, nevertheless, all the things that matter most about the Reacher books are present in that little book in some form or other. So for any fan, it's fascinating. It's indirectly very revealing about the character. And once you've read it and go back to the Reacher books, you can see traces of um, Lee's own hero running, uh, of, of, sorry, of the hero of that text running throughout his books. And going right back to the beginning, um, right back to the first book, in fact, because obviously, in a way, it's the distillation. He wrote it, he wrote it right after he finished his last sole-authored book, Blue Moon. Um, literally kind of finished Blue Moon one week and then wrote The Hero the next. And um, he always would pace his writing by the number of words in a, in a, in a book. So, you know, a kind of um, the 100,000-word novel, 
um, would take him six months of working days to write, essentially. Um, the short story uh, would take a day or two days, depending on the length. The 10,000 word essay, he gave it a week max, you know. <laughs> so he wrote it and I was very much in touch with him at the time he was writing it. So obviously it is kind of the culmination. It's what, you know, what the distillation of all the things that he'd been thinking about all those years, which in some ways, unsurprisingly, had clarified and crystallized as he'd gone through those 24 books and gone through those motions so many times. But it's also got those other things that are very characteristic of him. I mean, he could easily have been a linguist, as in, you know, an analyst of the language. It's got a lot of a lot of it's to do with etymology. He's exploring the etymology of the word heroin and how that links to hero. And, you know, there's a lot of it's to do with the human species as risk takers and tribe the sort of tribalism of humanity the loneliness of the individual sort of quite existential themes they're all in there in a very sort of distilled form so yeah fascinating I would have thought to any fan but also of interest to anyone anyone who's interested in you know the concept of the hero and he does you know towards the end of it he's also quite um he also reflects at some length on how on the devaluation of the word in a popular everyday usage, um, how we, you know, more or less, anyone and everyone is a hero. You know, you can see the virtue of that. You can see in a way the need for that. And certainly in recent times, we've seen the need for it. But you can also see how it wears, it can wear thin. Even the, the heroes of the NHS got tired of being called heroes all the time. I suppose there's, there's only so many uh, many things that you can buy with applause. I think the heroes after we wanted proper peer houses, which I can understand. Yeah. But yeah, it's a great little read and um, just um, it's it's always, you know, when he speaks, uh, um, he always tends to surprise. He'll say something unorthodox, unexpected. And, you know, that's in, in, in the book. So it's, it, as I say, very idiosyncratic, which I like. Because one of the things I think people, readers always like to, you know, it's where a good biography will always fascinate uh, readers or who have a, a favourite author or subject matter because you want to know a wee bit more about them and obviously if this book gives people an insight into to Lee Child what what he thinks what makes him tick what's his inspiration that's fascinating mm-hmm. I also noticed that I don't know if it was a review or a blog for it saying it was essential reading for anyone trying to write or understand fiction which I th- again I thought was really interesting yeah he's got some great one-liners in there and sometimes his one-liners just seem so you can really hold on to them you know like uh, Basically, uh, what's the purpose of fiction to give people what they don't have in real life? Or another one in there is um, that uh, the story proceeds on the basis of the writer's aims and the reader's needs. They're very simple statements, plain, not fancy, not difficult, but very thought-provoking. So, yeah, I think there are all sorts of gems like that in there that would be of interest to the writer and the storyteller. But he also pursues in depth that theme, which is very close to his heart, that, you know, that um, that the thriller in particular and the story of the hero goes back to the most ancient um, times and is the archetype, the archetypal story, you know, the most fundamental, the oldest story in humanity and, you know, predates writing. And that to him, that's very, very important to him. And it's very much um, something that he's built into the Reacher character. And in fact, I kind of, um, I, I often think when people um, in recent years in particular 
there's been a little bit of a theme or almost a new orthodoxy that um, Reacher needs to be dragged into the modern day. He needs to become conversant with technology. Oh, isn't it great that he can now handle a mobile phone and knows what one is? I'm skeptical because had that been necessary, I mean, let's face it, computers existed when Reacher was first invented. Had that been necessary, he wouldn't have stood up for so long. <laughs> uh, you know, it's very late in the day for him to become interested in technology. And, you know, because what matters about Reacher is the ancient stuff. And in fact, you know, you read the hero. In fact, it's best to read it with Blue Moon because they were written so close together. There are literally words and phrases the same in, in the two books. And that increasing preoccupation Lee had with the, the primitive responses that Reacher acts, you know, he, he's, he's got these preternaturally alert, you know, senses. Hears things before people, other people do. He see, he's always a step ahead. He's, he's the great hunter. He's, got, he's, got, he's just very finely tuned to what's going on around him. He takes that right back to those sort of um, instincts that were honed when, you know, the Reacher character was defending the tribe or fighting off the saber tooth or whatever. And, and you can see it. He might, he might be writing about Reacher in an urban setting, but the same words are used. The cars are the, the predators instead of the saber tooth. Because one of the things that I, I was wondering as well is that, you know how sometimes people, are, maybe the literary world, and I suppose this is a generalisation, but sometimes can look down on, for example, thrillers like the Reacher series and maybe slightly dismissive. It's maybe the reason why, you know, for example, people have said crime novels or people who write those sort of books have never been nominated for, say, one of the great literary prizes. But then for Lee to write a book like that, that kind of shows the depth of his his mm. knowledge and his understanding of fiction, of writing, of its place in history. Then also the fact, I think, even just that he was selected as one of the Booker Prize judges yeah. is maybe a sign that people are slowly but surely starting to realise that there's literally merit in these books, Absolutely. but also substance in the people who are actually writing them. Exactly that, I think, that there's great intelligence behind these books that has been applied, great thought, great craft, great skill. And, you know, Lee puts it very, very nicely and very simply, I think. His books are out there in the marketplace. So too are the books of Marcel Proust. That makes them equal. Readers can choose. One isn't, you know, better than the other. They're both there on the shelf in the bookshop. Readers can choose and they can choose both. And they often do choose both. So, and I think, yeah, when I met him, funnily enough, he was, well, just after I met him, in, in a, one particular year, he spoke at Cambridge and he spoke at Oxford. And he wrote for the New Yorker and he wrote for the New York Times. And all those things happened in one year. And he got his first review in the London Review of Books. And he was first noticed by the TLS. That's, you know, around 2015-16. And he called it his establishment year. But I think, um, and you know, because he doesn't take himself too seriously. It's one of the, the great strengths of his character, really. And, and, and in a way, you could say that book a year and publishing the hero, which again was published by the TLS, uh, launching their new imprint. Those are some of the reasons he, he did it, that he agreed to do it. He didn't, I don't think he particularly wanted to write another book at that point. He's thinking about retirement. He's about to retire. But, you know, that appealed to him. And that kind of um, quiet recognition, in a way, from, from the establishment, it holds a level of satisfaction. That was the same year he got CBE as well. For services to literature, you know, after 25 years, it's nice. It's in a way, nicer than getting it after. I think J.K. Rowling got one you know, a couple of years into Harry Potter understandable, given the level of her success, but they started writing at the same time. Uh, you know, Lee waited 25 years and was quite pleased to accept when it came around. You know, he thought, yeah, basically because he thinks, yeah, I've worked hard. 
Yeah. I've worked hard at this job. I've done my bit. I have, you know, provided a service to the reading public. And uh, therefore, I'm, I'm happy to accept these, um, this recognition. It was very nice to see, actually. It was nice to witness. And it all happened. It was beautifully timed for me as a biographer. Because I also think as well, again, it's this idea of sometimes if something's popular, somehow it's not as good as something that's... Uh, a few people can appreciate. And I think there's not only are, are people buying reading those books, I don't think they're only reading those books. That might be a book that gets people back into reading, that, that, exactly. that rediscovers the joy of reading, that realises, well, this is what books can do for me. And it takes you, you're either going to read the whole series, then you go and read other things. That can only be a positive. But ex- ex- that's a really common story, and it's such an important story. But then, I mean, it's just obvious to me. I mean, I was happily reading Lee Child, as well as Borges and... Lorca and uh, you know whatever else I was reading I, I I'm you know an eclectic reader so many people are I'm not worried about what genre it is particularly I don't want to be too narrow and in fact I think that was one of the things as well that you know I felt was helpful to me in a way in writing the biography that I wasn't too hung up on the whole you know this whole thing of just that particular genre I just treated him as a writer a very successful writer that I enjoyed reading and that many others enjoyed reading and who had so many interesting things to say on the subject. And I, I didn't worry too much about you know, trying to place him in the hierarchy of thriller writers or whatever. I approached him with a pretty open mind, I think, which was maybe another reason he was happy to accept me as biographer, you know, that it was a little bit left field. Now, having got your recommendation for a book that uh, you would recommend to anyone, we now go on to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. This is one of my favourite answers because the answer you gave me, the first part is parallel algorithms and matrix computation. And then you put in brackets, or Joe Nespo. I, I love that. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, it was actually by far the hardest question because, <laughs> I mean, I'm a reader and uh, I'm happy to read. Reading's kind of easy. So if you paid me to read, I'd probably read anything, really. Uh, I, you know, it's only reading. It's no hardship. So um, I, I found that one difficult and also I didn't particularly want to single out any book that I'd enjoyed less than another. But, and so I settled in the end on um, one that I, ironically enough, was actually paid to read, uh, which was Parallel Algorithms and Matrix Computation. Because there was a point after doing my PhD and before getting a proper job, uh, my first job was at Hull, Hull University, um, where I did a lot of freelance editing and I was in Cambridge and I did a lot of, I, basically someone offered me a, a job um, freelance and I took it and I wasn't, you know, fussed about what it was. And I did some really interesting things with all sorts of quite eminent academics, actually. Um, and anyway, this guy um, asked me to help him with the, you know, edit his book. And it was not my field. He was an engineer and uh, it was not my field. And I found it very hard going. Probably partly because I couldn't really relate to the material. Um, and that's not what he needed me for. But it, the, the English was, was so messed up that it was, it was just very, very hard work. At the same time, I had to treat it with extreme caution because I was very liable to misunderstand any particular point that he was trying to make. So I had to be, it was tricky. And I, I, mean, I had to work so hard and I didn't particularly enjoy the process and really I'd rather not read that book again. <laughs> well, I'm impressed that you read it the first time. <laughs> well, there you go, you see. So pay me and I'll read anything, really. <laughs> <laughs> so where does, uh, the, uh, where does the in brackets of Joan Espo? Yeah, well, the Joan Espo. I did read some Joan Espo, of course, and I enjoyed um, 
Now I couldn't tell you what I enjoyed because I blotted Joan Espo from my mind. Because then I, you know, I was happily reading Joan Espo and he was pushing some limits for me. But then I read one which I had to put down. And it is something to do with some kind of degree of violence against women. I don't know if it's if it had if it's connected specifically with it being against women, but it was against women. And there was a sort of level of violence there that I just I just found I couldn't read it. I was I was too frightened. I was too I just wanted to run away. And so I did actually not finish that book. And then I ne- I've never read any journalist for since, you know, my last, no doubt. I know he's a great writer. As I said, I was enjoying his books up to a point, but then a line was crossed and I, I could not go back to them. And I still can't. Just uh, so that he's not alone. Something similar happened for me with Haruki Murakami. I love Haruki Murakami, um, but there was one book of his I had to put down and that, that involves some violence against animals. And I, I don't really know how central it was to the plot because I did have to stop quite early on. I have gone back to Murakami since because his books are more heterogeneous and, you know, that's not so likely to, to be an issue again. Whereas the Jonas book, I felt in a way, and this does happen with some series, that the violence escalates. And, and that's a risk of that kind of uh, genre, I suspect. And just one more, funnily enough, when I first, when I was purely a Jack Reacher reader, and did not know Lee at all. There was one of his books that I vowed never to read again. I did read it to the end, so that's a difference. But I was very um, disturbed by it, which was the fourth one, Visitor, which, you know, was quite scary and was, again, a serial killer uh, style. Of course, when I was doing the biography, I thought, oh, well, hang on, I'm going to have to read that book again now. Because, you know, obviously I, I did. One of the basic things I did was reread all the books, many of them several times over and go back to them all the time. And actually I was fine with it second time, probably because Nesbo had come in between. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I could put the visitor in perspective. <laughs> I mean, in terms of your sort of general reading, do you normally, would you normally finish a book once you started it or, or are you... One yeah, I know, that... and I know that's just come up in the news, hasn't it? In the yeah. Mark Bellingham at the Cheltenham. Literary Festival, yeah, I, there are very few books that I don't finish. That's why I remember those ones. Really only a handful. I suppose because I'm, I'm a fairly patient reader and I do know that there, I do know that there are books that sometimes, and they can be quite a slow burn, but they then they really draw you in and, you know, you're really glad that you've read them, that you start with them when you get to the end. So I'm a little bit wary of that idea that you, I do, of course, I love uh, a book that grabs you on the first page. And I have written quite extensively about one that did that recently for me, which was The Sound Mirror by Heidi James. And the first paragraph, first half of the first page, just blew me away. I read it and I was kind of a, you know, it's a sharp intake of breath. And I, I had to keep on reading. It was very compulsive. I love it when that happens. But if it doesn't happen, that's not necessarily a problem for me. For me, it's about, um, I think it's, it's very much about the pleasure of the prose. So if I like the way the sentences are moving along and the turn of phrase and maybe uh, the odd image here and there or the odd quiet touch of humour or something, I can be quite patient with a book. Because I also think what, what Mark Billingham was saying was specifically to do with the type of book he was talking about. You know, that He did actually if, say so, didn't he? Yeah, so if you're, if you're reading a crime book or a, or a thriller, then in, in the same way as I think, an editor or a, an agent would say to the writer, right, you need to grip me from the start. That's, that's what he was saying as a reader. You expect to be gripped at the start. Different books, as you say, can be a slow burner. 
Exactly. So, no, I'm sure that's absolutely right. And, of course, as with all these things, it's been, you know, taken out of context. Like, you know, exactly, I mentioned the, the Proust-Lee Child analogy earlier. And the way um, Lee talks about that is always quite subtle and intelligent, but it's always it's invariably reported in the press as, Lee Child thinks he's as good as Marcel Proust, or Lee Child thinks he's the next Shakespeare or something, you know, <laughs> whereas he obviously is never going to make some ridiculous statement or claim like that. But he's talking about the merits of all types of, yeah. um, of writing. I would also guess that probably if you just stop people in the street, there's more people that have, have read Lee Child than have read Proust. Absolutely. Me, yeah. me being one of them. I think you might be right there. Well, Heather, we are on to the fifth final book choice that you gave me that's a book uh, the last book you read a book you're reading now and it's a book called daddy by luke durand and for anybody who's maybe following you online that you've you've been writing about that as a, a book that was a was also a major influence on on lee child yeah and i'm glad i read it and in a way it brings this conversation full circle and in, in almost my life because um, we've talked quite a lot about spanish but you know french was my first foreign language i lived in Aix-en-Provence for two years when i was from the age of three to five. So that was, I kind of learned French along with English, sadly, uh, it's very rusty now. I did live in Paris for a year as well later on. So it was it's nice to include a book in French. And uh, I actually read this one in English, but I've gone back to look at it in French as well. Yeah, I'd been slow to read this book. I'd heard, a bit like hearing Lee say, I'm the Reacher guy. I'd heard him say, uh, when asked what his favorite book is, on. Obviously, he gives different answers to that question, as you would over 25 years. Um, so I'm aware of that. But he frequently would come up with this book that no one seemed to have heard of and no one else seemed to have read and uh, was unfamiliar to me and was kind of surprising. Somehow the title was even surprising, Daddy, you know, Luc Durand. And I eventually, um, once I took it down, and I'd heard him mention it several times, and then when I was at his place once in New York, I saw it on the shelf. And I think I was waiting for him for something. We were going to do something. And I just sat down and started reading it. And I quite enjoyed it, but I didn't get beyond the first chapter or so. And then I had to put it back. He's not the kind of guy who lends these books. He's very careful about where they are on the shelf and that they should remain there. And so um, I kind of forgot about it. And then eventually I just thought, after I'd done The Reach Guy, and I just thought, mm, still curious about that book. So I got hold of it you know, secondhand copy, read it, and I thought, ah, oh, now I see why I see why it mattered to him so much. And, you know, he'd read it about five years before he started writing Killing Floor. And it was just, I don't know I say in that article, which is on Crime Reads, that um, it, it's not about, it wasn't written, I said it could have been written for the young Jim Grant. It was the kind of book that he would have loved reading as a child. In fact, he was about 34, I suppose, when he read it. But um, it's the kind of book he would have loved as a child or as a young boy. And so I said it was a book written for him, but not surely about him. And yet the more I looked at it, having written his biography and having read all his works and having heard him speak so often and read every word he's written so many times so that it's all kind of just uh, going around in my head all the time. It's kind of become part of who I am, if you like. Um, I was just feeling this incredible sense of recognition as I was reading the book. Plus, it's a great story. I really enjoyed it. It was gripping, uh, really gripping, great characterization, terrific plot, and fantastic on the, on the detail, and actually set in parts of France that I knew quite well, which is always an added pleasure, isn't it, when you come across a book like that? And, and I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write that story of um, the two of them because it needs to be done. Someone should do it. And uh, 
then it'll be there on the record and future people who are researching his his writing can see that they can see Reacher lurking in those pages. You you mentioned uh, the fact that Lee Child is just in the kind of process of almost retiring. You know, the last couple of Reacher books have been co-written with his younger brother. You know, it's an unusual thing for any writer, particularly one who's created this long-running series, to almost step back and hand on the reins, as it were, to someone else. It is. And I, I doubt it would have happened had he not had a younger brother who was also a thriller writer. And they're close. And that's the only brother who's close to you know, four brothers, brothers. And the age gap between them is significant. And they didn't grow up together. And perhaps partly for that reason. Uh, they're close. Um, it's an almost paternal relationship, I guess, that he has towards Andrew in some ways. So I don't think it would have happened had it not been for that. And it, it kind of um, gives it a rationale and a logic. Um, Andrew was literally one of the first people to read Killing Floor. Obviously, he's been there right through. He's kind of lived with Reacher, and to the extent that Reacher is um, a version of Lee, he's lived with Reacher even longer than that. So if there was going to be a transition, you know, that's an, a reasonable one to make. But I, I do think that was um, largely down to demand no longer coinciding with desire on his part. You know, basically felt he'd done his bit. You know, he just collected his CBE and a uh, good time to step down. It's a neat 25 years. It's, um, it's you know, it's a quarter of a century. It's a, it's, and it was a second career. He'd already done Granada television for 18 years. So, you know, just generally, I felt, think, felt he'd done his bit. But there was this massive demand, of course, from readers. And I've been privileged to see that in my own way through the archive, where there are boxes and boxes of letters from fans literally begging him not to stop and begging him not to kill Reacher off and begging him not to die himself because what would happen to Reacher and how would they survive? And I'm not actually exaggerating any of that. In fact, I'm understating it. Boxes and boxes of fan mail like that. And of course, pressure from the publisher would like to see Reacher go on forever and maybe yeah. he maybe he will and maybe Andrew will find someone else in the long run who knows we'll see so there was a logic that you know you couldn't get much closer than that brotherly relationship of course for me um, I'm a little bit of a purist and having got to know Lee's writing so well and having listened to him say so many times a book must be the product of a single mind I, I sort of feel there is something about Lee's voice that cannot be imitated People and other publishers love to speak in terms of, this is the next Lee Child, move over, this is the next Lee Child, you know, move over Lee Child and whatever. And, and people like to parody his voice and, and that can be done. But I don't think that's quite the same thing as, as reproducing it. It's so weird and wonderful, his voice, when you look at it closely. There's a kind of element of um, divine madness in it, you know, <laughs> that, you, you know, you, you, you can sort of go so far in reproducing it and then there'll be something that you know, only Lee could have written that. So it's, it's a different reacher. And uh, I mentioned, obviously, at the, the start of the, the podcast, the fact that the paperback edition of The Reacher Guy, your, your biography of him, is just coming out now. Uh, we were talking before we started recording, hopefully there'll be the chance uh, with the paperback to, to perhaps do live events because obviously circumstances over the last 18 months have, have prevented oh. you from doing that. Paul, I dream of that, but um, there are also moments in publishing, aren't there? And uh, Uricha guys had a, good, um, had a good shot in the public eye and there were always new books coming out. So who knows what the future will bring. But yeah, I'd love to do some live events and meet. Um, I mean, obviously one of the great pleasures for me in a tiny way I've experienced 
you know, tiny taste of what Lee has experienced for so long, that lovely, lovely thing of reader feedback, you know, readers getting in touch spontaneously, getting to know readers, saying how much they'd enjoy the book, how much it meant to them for some personal reason. And often because Reach you as a character is so important to them. And that's been very special. So um, I've got no complaints. I have some disappointments, you know, those missed um, launch events from a year ago um, due to COVID, but no complaints, really. <laughs> and also the paperback's coming out in October, and I'm sure people who are listening to this are already starting to think, what can I get the reader in my life for Christmas? So it's, it's yeah. perfect, perfect timing. Thank you. And also, just on that note, if people do want to get it for Christmas, I do have lovely bookmarks and double-signed book plates that I'm very happy to send to people if they want them for Christmas gifts. I'd be delighted to do that. The paperback also has a new chapter, which um, really arose out of the conversations that Lee and I had after the book was published, because, of course, people started asking Lee Chad a whole new set of questions, um, which was interesting. Yes, yeah, that sounds fascinating. For a long time, but he was asking new questions, and so he gave interestingly different answers and I could not <laughs> write them down so yeah there's some, some new stuff in the paperback um yeah thank you very much for letting people know that <laughs> excellent well sadly we've come to the end of this podcast Heather first of all I, th- I think as I said I said to you at the start I think people should read the Reacher guy and then go and read the Reacher books as well or vice versa and I wish you continued success with that with the paperback coming out but I, I have to say I've, I've loved chatting to you about some of your favorite books on the podcast it's been a real pleasure thank you and and would you agree just for the readers out there who worry about this that you can read the reacher guy without worrying about spoilers too much as regards the reacher novels absolutely yeah although yeah. because one of the things that fascinates there's a brilliant bit in it where you kind of almost dissect the very beginning of the very first novel killing four and and mm-hmm. show the process that he went through to get you know, to, to shape it into what it became, which it's just as a reader is absolutely fascinating. So there's just a lot of wee gems in it. Thank you very much. And thanks very much for having me on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast. And I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at readallabout20, on Instagram at readallaboutitpodcast, or you can send an email to readallaboutit at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.